0: Good afternoon. In 1896, an Italian named Vilfredo Pareto observed that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the population. His finding, which came to be known as the 80-20 rule, or the Pareto Principle, began showing up in numerous other applications. They found that world income distribution is, is this way. 80% of the income in the world is had by 20% of the population. 20% of, compl- of customers provide you with 80% of complaints. And to our discredit... Researchers found this rule to also show up in human productivity. 20% of employees tend to take 80% of sick days. And more to our purposes this afternoon, 80% of the work tends to be completed by 20% of the people. The congregation has asked me to address the following. Anyone who has been involved in volunteer organizations is familiar with the idea that you can't compel volunteers and 20% of the people do 80% of the work. How can we keep these principles from creeping into the church? What are the causes of a lack of volunteerism? Can leaders encourage, how can leaders encourage more participation in the mission and work of the church? What does Ephesians 4:11 4, through 14 say to us? I want to start there in Ephesians chapter 4, and then we'll go back and look at the the questions that were asked of us. But let's start in Ephesians 4, and we're going to look at verse 11, and I'm going to go down through verse 15. "...and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ." titled, Everybody, Somebody, Anybody, Nobody. The story is about four people named Everybody, Somebody, Anybody, and Nobody. There was an important job that needed to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. That little story is the basis for the title of the lesson this afternoon, and it humorously captures the essence of taking responsibility. And that's Paul's message in Ephesians 4, taking responsibility. We have responsibilities in the kingdom, and it's imperative to the growth of the body as a whole that we accept our role and supply our part, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Ephesians 4.16 Before we move too much further, I do want to dispel a misconception that could arise from this story. There are roles and functions, responsibilities and tasks that everybody cannot do. It isn't up to just anybody, as God has designed us with specific somebodies to fill those roles. Paul begins in Ephesians 4 telling us that Christ gave some to be five different roles within the congregation. The apostles and prophets performed a vital function in laying the foundation for the kingdom. Ephesians two twenty. This isn't a job for just anybody. Jesus the head declared it to be the role of those appointed, and they needed to play that role. Evangelists and pastors take on authority and responsibility over certain congregations. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Finally, Paul speaks to teachers. Not all men are going to take part in the teaching responsibilities in the congregation. But it's a role that somebody needs to fill. It may not be anybody. Paul makes a similar statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. and We're going to start in verse 12 of that 12th chapter. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. Even when we consider each individual member within a congregation, God presents them with a unique set of qualities. Each of us brings something a little bit different to the congregation. We're not all hands, we're not all eyes, we're not all biceps, but we are all Christ when we consider volunteering in the body, that's a critical point to uphold. We are all Christs, therefore we are all important members of the body. Each member is valued by God. And so its contributions to the body must be valued as well. The liver is just as important as the lungs. The small toe, just as essential as the thumb. And so we must accept, then, that it isn't what we bring, but how we bring that matters most. Recently, a couple in our congregation needed assistance moving into, uh, they were moving locations, so they were needing assistance with moving. And it wouldn't shock you that our 90-year-old elder didn't show up to help move the boxes. He, That's not a role for him to fill anymore. Uh, that's a role for some of us younger to fill. And it was a role that needed to be filled, a volunteer opportunity. It wasn't a job for just anybody. And I think that's an important point to take from 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. Everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody falls flat at the anybody. And we as brethren need to be sympathetic to one another as we evaluate our own selves and the opportunities that we have. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. For those of you who are volunteering and participating, it can become very easy to get down and say, Where are the hands that make light work? And that can become our theme. Not very many people showed up. It was really a difficult task because nobody else showed up. Well, maybe that was your opportunity. That was your role to fill. And God blessed you with that opportunity now. Think of it in these terms. You're doing a work which pleases God. God will find work for your brethren, but let him do that. You focus on serving him with the opportunities that he provides you. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. There are the keys. It's about doing our work and worrying about our own efforts focusing on what we individually can do, thinking about how can I care for my brother? How can I care for one another? It's about building one another up. Let's return to Ephesians chapter 4. Notice here the connection Paul makes between the care we have for one another and our participation in the body. Verse 11. He gives these functions and he says that These are given by Christ. These are gifts given by Christ so that, verse 12, the saints can build one another up in order, verse 13, to present the body as a mature unit, measuring the full stature of Christ. Verse 15 and 16 then impress upon us the manner in which this is done. We are truthing or conveying truth. Speaking, we sometimes get the misconception that it was all auditory. When we speak, it's more than just auditory l- truth in love. We're conveying truth in everything that we do. We are truthing in love. We are edifying in love. It's because I love my brother that I want to grow with them as members of the same body. Love forms the basis then for our sacrifice. God demands that we sacrifice ourselves and our time so that the body will start to look like his son. Consider Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So when Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that we're growing and that the body is growing up to look like Jesus, he means it's growing up to look like the Jesus that he describes in Philippians 2. The sacrificial life, giving up, humbly willing to sacrifice self for the sake of brethren. God is looking for a kingdom that is filled with humble people laying down their lives for their brethren. Paul is really asking each one of us, lay down yourself and your own will to care for one another. The first question that was asked of us is, how do we keep this 80-20 principle or the Pareto principle out of the church? How do we keep it out of the church? Paul addresses this when he says, every part does its share." Each individual has a responsibility. And so if we maintain first that this is command, volunteering ought not to be an issue because we recognize this is commandment of God. God demands that we volunteer. It isn't, though, that we're being voluntold because we're coming to Him acknowledging that He has graced us abundantly by his son, with a new man. And that new man serves. That's the, the essence of that new man. It's a, it's a servant. And if we have that new man, that we've taken on the servant role. Matthew 25, starting at verse 14, we get a uh, parable of the three men given talents by their, their master, and they're told to use some, do something with it, make a return. The master gave each one a share, and that share was to be used. Now imagine for a moment that your kidneys say for a minute, gallbladder, we are done for the day, so how about you take over our work today as well? Your body really can't work that way, can it? And neither can the body of Christ. Each member has to supply its own share. The master provides the share just as he determines. The master gave one, a certain amount, five, another two, and another one, just as he pleased. This truth proves that God knows what you are capable of providing and he anticipates a return on that investment. The two who made something of themselves are said to have traded. And we don't know what uh, their line of business was. I've I've wondered maybe they bought a cow and sold the milk. We don't really know what they did. But when they got that back to the master, there was more than what they started with. They had a return. What we do know is they had a mind to work. When the master returned... Those two presented their return, and then the last one came, and there was nothing to give. And the master wasn't satisfied with two-thirds participation. He certainly wouldn't be satisfied with the 80-20 rule. He demanded a return from all three. Our faith in God's calling us to task uh, in God's command ought to be enough. If we're supposed to be the right knee, then we better be the best right knee for the body. If we're supposed to be the canine, then we better be the best canine in that mouth for the sake of the body. The body needs our participation. The body grows best when all three members or all parts, in this case, participate. Ultimately... What we find in these men is really a difference in heart. The third man said, I know it's difficult, so I won't even try. The first two said, I know it's difficult, so I'll do my best. That's the heart that the master is looking for. I know it's difficult. I know this may be more work, but I'm going to sacrifice myself because I care for the body. It really is a matter of heart. Beyond just commandment is this heart. In Mark chapter 10, 35 through45, James and John come to Jesus asking for places of high esteem in the kingdom. Later, when the rest of the disciples find out about this exchange, there's a little kerfluffle and Jesus puts it to rest in verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the kingdom of God is different than other kingdoms. It's not about rank and power and might and authority. It isn't a kingdom of the haves and the have-nots. It's a kingdom of servants, a kingdom of slaves, a kingdom that some have described as upside down. The humble take the throne. James and John and the other disciples needed this reminder, and so do we. Motive is critical. When we're interested in prestige, it can get in our way and we forget and fail in our service. Have you ever done a task hoping that someone at the end would pat you on the back? And say, that was a really good job. a boy. Here, take this position of great respect. We're so pleased with your efforts. That heart... Is one that's self seeking, really, isn't it? It's looking out for the interest of self. It doesn't belong in the kingdom because the kingdom really isn't ours. And so, where does the glory go? It doesn't belong to us, and the worthiness of the kingdom doesn't belong to us. We're here as servants. Therefore, all motivation must be to the praise of God. I love God's people. I want him to be glorified then by what I do. The commitment is always to him. Paul said as much about his own work in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. I want to hedge on this point just a little bit. I don't really want to be misunderstood in what I'm saying. There is a real sense of accomplishment. As the Master said to the two servants, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. A distinction then ought to be made between the one who parades himself about in unlove and the one who feels satisfied for having done the will of God. A young man works for hours to present his first sermon, and he gets up there and presents it without fainting? Well, he ought to feel some sense of satisfaction. An elderly woman sees fruit as she guides a young mother through the early years of her her work, and she sees good fruit bearing from that. There ought to be some satisfaction in this. Paul spoke of the congregation at Philippi as his crown or joy and crown. It is perfectly healthy to find satisfaction in our work for the Lord. John says this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, when he talks about following the Lord's commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I think one of the things that makes His commandments not burdensome is when we do them, there's some satisfaction about the accomplishment. When we take on an assignment in the Lord, we put our effort into it, and then we see the joy that comes out of that service. Galatians 6, 4 makes this point. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Paul is making the point that oftentimes our pride is is the thing that distinguishes. And it's the reason that we're craving recognition. We want to be recognized. Why? So that we can compare. I did a good job, and they didn't, and they recognized me for the good job that I did. And I got elevation from that. And that's what he's concerned about. Instead, what what Paul is encouraging us to find satisfaction in is that we did the will of God. When we've evaluated our life's work and we've done the very best that we could, we've finished the race, we've fought a good fight, our conscience is clean, then we can rejoice in the Lord that He's allowed us to work for His sake. If I were to sum everything up that we've said so far... How do we keep this Pareto principle out of the church? We accept that it's commandment, and then we do it with a heart turned to God. A heart turned to God because we love Him, and therefore we love one another. Serve the Lord with joy. Hebrews 10, admonishes, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed in pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We think about one another, and that stirs up in each other good works. What are the causes of a lack of volunteerism? Peter Lencioni has written quite a few books. He wrote a book on employee engagement, and there's an interesting fable that he writes in that book. And one of the the moral of that fable is that employee disengagement occurs when any one of three issues comes up. These three issues that he, as he titles them, are anonymity, where we are not known. Irrelevance, when we don't see the opportunity to provide value in what we're doing. Or immeasurement, we can't measure progress or the level of success that we're having. The scriptures seem to evidence these same principles that, that can lead to a lack of volunteerism on our part and disengage us from the body. Anonymity. Part of the issue contributing to a lack of volunteerism is a lack of a consideration for one another. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Is it possible that part of the issue contributing to a lack of volunteerism is a lack of consideration for one another? Who are the brethren? What needs do they have? What can they contribute? Is there a work you currently are doing that you could bring someone alongside and show them how to do that same good work? We as volunteers must recognize that it is really God alone who knows or should know all that's going on in a congregation and from its members. <clears throat> and your Father who sees in secret will reward you open it. And that ought to be if anyone is suffering from this thought that i'm not known my brethren don't know me god knows you he's knowing the work that you're doing so keep doing that work and god who sees in secret will reward you openly irrelevance first peter chapter 4 starting in verse 10 As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our efforts in the congregation have a direct impact on our brethren. He says, minister it to one another. And they provide God then a return on the gift that he's given as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As an example, think about Peter and John heading up to the temple in Acts chapter 3. They're going up to the temple in Acts 3 and they see a lame man sitting there and they say, Peter says, look at us. And the first words out of Peter's mouth are silver and gold. I don't have those. And I've wondered whether that lame man was sitting there thinking, why in the world did you stop me then? I had all these people that have flocked in that I've missed their silver and gold, and you stopped me, why? Well, because I've got something better than silver and gold for you. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I have, I'm going to give you. What we have, give, because it's relevant and it has importance. He gave that man life. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have the power to heal a lame man, but we do have gifts granted by the grace of God, which can and do impact one another for good. Fruit born in others' lives when we work our part in planting and watering. And out of our efforts, God is glorified. You can do something and glorify the creator of this world. That's relevance. In measurement. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah escapes on a long, sad journey, which ends with him on Mount Horeb. He's just won a great victory over the prophets of Baal, but as he hears of Jezebel's plans to kill him, he seems to realize that no fruit is going to come from that victory. He couldn't see any measurable success, and so he deserted his post. God reminded him on the mountain that he was placing his faith on the wrong measurables. God alone sees the numbers. Most of our measurables in the Lord really go to faith. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Matthew 6. The Lord knows those who are his. 2 Timothy 2.19 that said, I think there are things that we can measure which ought to spur us on to further love and good works. And I'll give you a couple examples, and you can probably think of a few more. Your prayer life. How do you measure up to 1 Thessalonians 5.17's command that you pray without ceasing? What if you spent 10 minutes more every day in prayer with your Lord. What would happen in your life? How would that change your perspective? How would that change the amount of time that you consider your brethren? Would you find yourself more or less willing to serve their needs? Well, here's something that can be measured. Opportunities. Through the end of the year, perhaps you could make it your goal to ask one person, whether that be one of your elders or an older couple or a younger couple. It doesn't really matter. You choose. And each month you ask them, how can I help? What can I do to be of service to you? And be purposeful and intentional in that. Don't say, if you ever need anything, my phone is always open. Instead, say, how can I help? Do you need your gutters cleaned? Can I give a sermon or a reading next Sunday or next month? Imagine what your elders would think if you volunteered for that and they didn't have to ask you. Can I watch your kids next week while you go get groceries at the store by yourself? How many young mothers would jump up and down at that? These are measurables, aren't they? Things that we can measure our progress by. Anonymity, irrelevance, and immeasurable. We really are responsible for fixing those things in our own life. That's not somebody else's responsibility to do But there are things where the leaders of a congregation can encourage more participation. And that was the last question asked. How can leaders encourage more participation in the mission and work of the church? They can do it by leading by example. Timothy was told by Paul to be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Paul willingly put himself out there as an example for others to follow. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, for you have us as a pattern. Philippians 3.17 So use your effort to stir up love and good works among the brethren. Second, provide opportunities. Now sometimes brethren can get the false notion in their head that that work is the leader's responsibility. And sometimes it is, but oftentimes it's a misnomer, And it's not true. And you could just as easily have been a good guide and assistant there in that work. Sometimes we get it in our head that it's just easier to do it ourselves and we shortchange. It can become too easy to just do it without providing opportunities for others. There's an interesting discourse in John chapter 11, starting in verse 39. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Now, isn't it interesting? Jesus is about ready to raise the dead. And he can't move a stone? Why does he ask somebody else to move that stone? Well, I think the answer is in Martha's response. Martha says, what do you mean? He's been dead four four days. Why Why would we do that? There was a a calling to faith. That's what Jesus is doing here. She needed to grow. If Jesus does all the work himself, Martha doesn't have the opportunity to learn trust. Often it's just easier to do a task, but we limit the growth in someone else. Instead of rolling the stone away for them, let them do the work. Let them learn to trust in God through challenging experiences. This is effectively building them up as Ephesians 4 prescribed you to do. Equip them with the ability to serve one another. Third, show and tell. A number of years ago a group of us young individuals had an opportunity to sit in the basement of the Old Lodge at Eminence with Randy Tetmeyer, as he taught us how to lead songs. And I still lead 648 in the Red Songbook occasionally before the Lord's Table at a much slower pace than it's written. That's he bore it all. Why? Because Randy Tetmeyer showed us that that was an effective song for the Lord's Table. And if you slowed the pace and really thought about those words, you could make an impact. He was showing and telling, and that work that he did helped a number of us yet today. Before we send a group of inexperienced and zealous folks out to do work, are we showing them intentionally? Notice 2 Timothy two two. Timothy was to take the lessons Paul had taught him and teach other men so they could teach. So it went beyond them just knowing it. They had to know it well enough to teach it. Timothy had to be able to teach teachers. There had to be a deeper understanding enough that the next crop could teach others also. Intentionality takes planning, but the growth of the members will be worth it. I'll give you an example. You plan to visit someone who's ill in the hospital. Invite someone to go with you. Show them how to interact with the sick. You'll help them learn compassion and faith and sacrifice. Titus 2 lays this principle out, doesn't it? that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sounded faith in love and patience, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern for good works. Paul's theme there was teaching and patterning. Teach them and set the pattern so that they can do that same work as well. Let's go to Romans chapter 12 as we conclude. Verse 11. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. There is no place for complacency in the body. God is seeking servants who are fervent for him. Brothers and sisters who love one another enough to diligently minister to one another as if they were serving the Lord, because they are. God is calling somebody, anybody, everybody, to join in the work of his kingdom. May we all have heart enough to do that work and to be found in the end with a well done, good, and faithful servant.